Well, um, I don't know how to do it, but I can present a little uh, opening PowerPoint thingy on the screen. Would you, would you guys like to start with that? I know I have some questions from people, but um, we have two hours. Uh, you met me at the conference, I assume. You'll know who I am, and so you know what I do. Um, I've been doing this for 40 years, coaching people. I coach Indigenous people up in Canada. Uh, where it's youth suicide problems, which is a pretty interesting environment um, and a traumatic one. And I coach people in New York uh, trying to make another billion. So, guys, look, um, what the purpose of just if you haven't been coached in, in business before or in life or whatever it is, therapy or whatever it is, the key thing about coaching is that it's supposed to reduce the risk of shit happening. So the whole idea of, of um, what I do with people is, uh, is we capture what they want and then it, it should be that I've been where they're going. So without knowing you personally, I can't tell whether I can coach you because I don't know where you're going and I don't know if I've already been there once before. Um, it's pretty easy for me when I say, if you say to me, uh, I want to go here because I've walked that trail 60 times. That's Mount Everest in the background. There's Amma de Blam on the right-hand side. That trail on the left, that dirt trail, I've walked it 60 times there and back. So if you say to me, take me up there, uh, I know hands down that I can reduce the risk of you getting altitude sickness or falling off the mountain or anything. But when it comes time for, um, for business work and life coaching, the question is going to be, where are you going? And have I already been there a couple of times before? And if I have, I can coach you. If I haven't, I'm operating from theory. So until I know somebody, and which means know what they want, know where they're going and know why they're not going where they want to go and what's the risk involved, I can't coach. So when, you, when a coach stands up like I am now and talks generically, I, I can only give you a, a, a really big broad brush, paintbrush approach. So there's five things that coaching lies about and which is important for you guys to know because maybe after this you'll consider going out there and asking the company to get you a coach or being coached by someone. So you've got to be really aware of five lies that coaches tell. One, they promise a pleasure without a pain. And that's a really big uh, no-no in the world of coaching because everywhere you're going to go, even if it's up to Mount Everest base camp, it's going to hurt. And if somebody says, I'm going to take you to base camp or take you on a journey to be successful or have a happy family or something like that, and there's no, they don't engage a level of... Uh, uh, discomfort or pain or uh, if they paint the picture as rosy, they're lying through their teeth and they're just trying to extract money out of your pocket. Second one, um, people solve today's problems by a promise of tomorrow's cure. So they say, look, they use the words when you. When you get to there, you'll be, it'll all be over and it'll all be good. And that, that's a red, red flag that you need to watch out for. The third one... Um, is to to get the if the if your coach if you get a coach and the coach starts saying well done or I think you've done the right thing or um, good on you for doing that or congratulations or let's crack a champagne the coach is using their opinion of you to create your giving you some sense of identity and the the opposite should be true you should be telling the coach well done or <laughs> you should be telling the coach they've done a shitty job or a good job. So it's really important to be aware of someone projecting their opinion and calling it coaching. Um, the next one, number four, uh, is to, to align 
some sense of concrete goal setting, saying, oh, you want to be, um, you want to run a marathon or you want to do, you want to get so many dollars in your bank or you want to do this. And creating in you a sense of confidence in yourself based on the goal. Goals are malleable things. They should be never taught as uh, things you chip in marble. They should be ever adaptable because they rely on your imagination. So with, with that, uh, uh, self-confidence and goal setting should be completely isolated from each other. Um, and unfortunately, many, many times in presentations and self-help and TED Talks, they're not. Um, and the last one is to drive behaviour with a final outcome. If someone says, if you stop drinking tomorrow, you'll be great or you'll be a champion. Uh, it, it, there's a finite end to a behavioural change. And if there's a finite outcome, uh, the promise is sort of like nirvana. It's saying if you meditate, you'll have peace. That's a good uh, behavioural driver with a finite outcome. The outcomes, every outcome you get from coaching just leads to another problem. So if you, if you, with wisdom in time, you learn that with, with a goal-setting habit, every time you achieve a goal, it creates two more that you haven't achieved. So there is no satisfaction comes from goal achievement. So satisfaction needs to come before goal achievement. So we get satisfied and then we go and do something. But if someone says by meditating you'll get peace, they're trying to drive you to a finite outcome by a change of behaviour. And you need to have a red flag for these things. It is. And what you, if you watch the Olympics, which we all are, of course, in some way or another, in some event, you see failure and you see... It, the people who, who, who lose the event they targeted and then and fail and don't have um, and have their self-confidence built on that goal, uh, on that failure, they can't do the next event or they can't do the next thing. What, we've, what we need to have is self-confidence needs to be built on self, on skill and not the goal because quite often uh, we, we grow in, at support and challenge. So if you go for something, there's a 50% chance you're not going to get it. And if you build your self-confidence on getting it, that's a real mind buzz. We had a little young guy, 26 years old, commit suicide in the park just around the corner last week. And that guy just, just built his self-confidence on a lot of um, what you call it micro goals that were being set. They all fell over at once. And it just it, it, it showed the guy just ran out of hope because his whole thing was built on achieve, achieve, get there, get there. And they were quite small goals he had, but it was really sad to see somebody that had built their self-confidence around goal setting. So, uh, yeah, it, it, that may not be something you've heard all that often. Um, the second part of coaching is it designs process. So what's really important in life is to separate outcome and process. And I think um, process is how you live your day. And I'm going to talk a lot about that today. I'm going to talk about mental strength or mental uh, toughness, as it's called. And that's what I'm going to focus on today in the short time we have together. But um, what's most important is that uh, the, the, the process of living needs to lead to an outcome. The outcome should not dictate the process. The process in, in, as such needs to stand alone and be an enjoyable thing to do. You know, like if you're going to work and getting stressed... That is not a good process, no matter what the outcome. So I would never advocate for a client of mine to go and get stressed, to come home exhausted to their family, 
to um, be uh, uh, negative, uh, feel sad, uh, to, to go through any form of process and justify it by saying, but I will get the result I want. I think that is a really a abuse of self and abuse of the people around us. Coming home tired is a good example of what people often say to me is, but I need to in order to get what I want. So the, 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 the process that you design with a coach needs to be a really, really enjoyable process, a good, healthy process, a process that actually engages other people that you love and care about, but it has the outcome of helping you go down the direction of the goals that you have set. So I would never uh, raise the goal above process. Um, I work with uh, musical performers and athletes and all sorts of people who come to me because their outcome that they were targeting, you know, the goal, uh, and their, their process is really shitty. And they didn't, couldn't sustain the level of um, endurance that was required to build towards their goal. So they got an injury or they had a setback or they missed a medal or something like that. And they, they go into what's called chronic fatigue, which is just process a shitty process and a targeted outcome. So uh, happy people build successful lives. I, I believe that fundamentally. And I, and I don't think unhappy people who achieve success, I don't think they enjoy it anyway. <laughs> and they blow a whole lot of stuff along the way. So um, the four, five principles of that is, firstly, you can't be a victim. If you want to be in good, healthy process, you can't say, I'm a victim. You, you must say, if I'm in a shitty process, it's because I'm choosing to be shitty in the process. So that means it's changeable. Blame means somebody, the company, your partner, your COVID or something is you attribute responsibility for how you're experiencing your journey in life. You attribute it to something outside of yourself. And if you do that, you can't change it because there's something outside of yourself, no matter how much you bark and protest or, or disappoint or talk to people about how bad COVID is, that doesn't change it. The only thing you you have a hand on, the only thing you've got a steering wheel control of is you. So if you blame somebody, you lose that thing that is most critical, which is the ability to change, change your mind, change your process. So the third thing is um, in what coaching does do is give you mental toughness. Now, mental toughness means you tolerate zero stress. So there's eustress, we're going to talk about it, and there's distress. So eustress is healthy because it's pressure, puts you under the pump, and that's healthy. But when it gets to distress, which is uh, fatigue and, and, and negativity and mental tiredness and things like that, it, that's, when it, that's when there's a zero tolerance. So mental toughness is the, there's the absolute commitment not to be distressed. <laughs> it's not the commitment to something, it's more the commitment not to be something. That's a really um, mis big misunderstanding when it comes to the strength that it takes to go up a mountain. It, when people run a business or go up a mountain or take a career in music or want to be a, a sports star or something like that, there's more opportunities to, to, to stay down, to fall down and stay down than there are to get up and walk on. And mental toughness is the is is the does the commitment not to take the opportunity to stay down.
<laughs> it's sort of upside down from what everybody, uh, when you hear the words mental toughness, you think it's at something or be tough towards something, but it's not. It's be tough against something. And that something is negativity and stress. The fourth one is to build uh, uh, the, the process of coaching needs to build a solid platform. So when I did the presentation for you guys at, um, in the offices of Accenture, I talked about a circle and the seven areas of life and, and uh, balance, balance in each area of life. And it's absolutely easy. As long as those seven areas of life don't become your goals. So if you think about the circle of life, the seven areas of a human being, that is the platform on which you build a goal. So if there was a totem pole or a light pole or a, um, a flag pole or some sort of pole going up into the sky, it has to be rooted in solid ground. And the solid ground to launch ourselves towards a goal that we commit to that solid ground are the seven areas of life. Now, what happens for from, from most people is that they, they start thinking that the seven areas of life are their goals and they start trying to uh, go strongly in one area or uh, fix up a problem in another area and the whole flagpole starts to wobble because the ground is not solid, it's, it's sand. And so building that solid platform of life balance, which means relationship, health, mental balance, spiritual balance, career balance, financial balance, and social balance, all the balances, they are, it's very critical that those things are in balance in order for somebody to have a, a, a real goal, a real goal. I don't think those seven areas of life are goals. I think a happy family is something that we have and we don't goal it because it doesn't make it any more achievable if we have a goal of a happy family. We need to recognise that right now, right this moment, right this day, we can have balance if we choose it. It's very empowering. It's very powerful stuff. And to be honest with you, when you, when you are running toward a big goal, you don't have the time to fluff around with goal setting for a family. You want supportive, loving family, and you've got to create that quick. Um, the last thing, uh, results are real reality. And... Um, I think process, uh, the measure of a healthy process is the results you achieve. So if you want to, when I said process doesn't lead to goals, goals is not the king of the mountain or the queen of the mountain. It is, but it, however, if you get the process right, if you get balanced and you get happy doing what you're doing and doing what you love and loving what you do, you will see the results in the outcome of your life. It'll, it'll, it's a direct correlation. Well, I, th I think the goal, the goal that we set needs to stand clean. It needs to be our intention or a very singular focal point. So for example, uh, my client last week, he said to me, uh, I, I want to support my client, but my Family at home, I want to support them too. And I go, well, now you've got two divergent topics on the table because the more you support your client, which will take, in the client's language, potentially time, the more you can't support your family, which they're going to also measure, possibly, in time. 
So getting, when we start making goals, let's say we have a goal in relationship to have, we, let's say we create one. My goal in relationship is to uh, live happily ever after or something, you know, have a romantic interaction with my That's my goal. And then you say, oh, my goal in business, in my career at work, is to do a really, really good job and get promoted. Then you say, spiritually, I want to be connected to nature. Well, there's no way that I can help you find a collaborative mindset that makes all those, just the three things I've mentioned so far, work hand in hand. You'll be, you'll be at war inside the brain trying to find a compromise. And as soon as you mention the word compromise in anything in life, you know you're sunk. So that if you're in relationship and you say, your partner says, I want the wall to be blue, and you say you want it to be green, and you go, oh, let's compromise and make it yellow, you're both unhappy. So what often happens is people set goals around these seven areas of life that compete with each other. And this is where m m mental uh, what's anxiety or duress or disappointment or depression, it all starts to emanate from making, setting goals that actually are in opposition. Now, yes, you could say, I'm gonna work really hard on my career so that my relationship will thrive, but your partner may not see thriving in a relationship as you coming home tired from thriving in your career. And then you say, well, oh, gee, sorry, sorry about that. I'll back off on my career because I've been overworking and I'll give more time to my relationship. And then the boss comes to work and goes, well, there's a 360 degree review on you that says you're not doing a, a, an Apple job because you're, uh, you're spending too much time worrying about the telephone text messages or something. I'm being a little bit benign and I hope that's and, and a bit juvenile with this conversation, but I, so I hope that's okay with everyone. I, I, I'm not trying to diminish how important it is to have a great relationship and a great career, but just even imagine uh, my partner is a, is a triathlete in the Olympics uh, in the reserve for the Dutch team and actually going to the world champs. So her primary thing, if you, if you draw this circle, her primary thing is physical. Now, where is she? She's in Cairns. How long has she been there? Two months. How long is she going to be there? Another two. That's four months. Where's our relationship? What if that's one of her goals, to have a great... So the goals go into... If these things become goals, they always fight each other. So what we, ha what we more try to do is find balance in our relationship, find balance in our mind, find balance in our physical, find balance in our social, find balance in our financial approach, find balance in our career. So we're operating from a... Not a highly volatile, needy place, which goals can trigger. So we don't. I'm not saying we don't have ambitions in each area of life, but they're not so strongly written that they're competitive. But at the centre of this circle, there's a there's a pole coming like almost like a cone coming up towards me out of the page, and the centre of that circle for my partner is win the world triathlon. So. Everything else needs to be stabilised so that she can win the world triathlon. With that, I know her. 
So I, I know who the person is. She is the goal she set, in a sense. All these areas of life are, are her daily habits and her daily rituals and her daily process. She saves a couple of bucks every week, so she puts it in the bank. That's a ritual. She's trained really hard. That's a ritual. But the work she does on her physical self, has it's almost like uh, the background noise. What's the foreground noise is how hard she trains every day and what she does to recover and how many massages she gets. And, and if, that was, if that became a goal on, on this flat plate, her financial, <laughs> the financial aspect of this thing would shrink to zero <laughs> because it, if you're a professional athlete, you'd never have any money. <laughs> it's a great, one of the great oxymorons of life. <laughs> You have to be careful. And the thing, the thing that I've found with, with distress in people's lives, and that's the thing I have to fight a lot against because distress to get something, it's just not worth it. Because the shitty life to get something good, it doesn't make the good thing good. It makes the good thing bad because when you get it, you think about what you've paid to get it and it's always too much. So... All I'm saying is you can set goals and do whatever you whatever works for you, but all I'm saying is when people say bring peace to the world or bring peace to your life or open your heart or love somebody and then they set competitive goals which fight against each other and, and they have to start working out which one to do first and which one to do next and which one to which one's more important and which one's less important. Then they go to work and work hard, but they feel guilty because in the process of doing that, they're not serving their relationship. Then they work on their relationship and feel really good about it, but then they feel guilty because they've put on weight. And then they uh, suddenly find in their work they didn't get promoted because they didn't do enough study because they're t spending too much time doing health and relationship and banking the money. The barefoot investor, he every, seems millions of people around the world follow him, and he just wrote an article saying... Uh, he ruined his life by saving money. <laughs> it's a very funny article. And it basically he set these goals and then he decided to change his life and go on a bus trip or something with his family. And his headspace for the bus trip was still stuck in uh, how to build wealth and how to, how to be economic. And he, he, he suddenly woke up to himself and said, I've got to quit my job and forget that goal for a little while. And so it, even with people who are highly successful, I, I assume he is, um, even with people who are highly successful, this circle uh, really, really messes with their head. So the ambition is, is, is this, if I can present it in this way, because uh, I have to coach people for a very, very long time before they get this circle balanced. It's a very, very hard job. The, the, what I ask people to do is to write down their score on each of the areas of life out of 10. I think I might have even done it for you guys at the, at the presentation. But my clients must score themselves 10 out of 10 in each of the areas of life. Total and unadulterated satisfaction. So that's the inner world of contentment in all seven areas of life. It doesn't mean they have enough money it doesn't mean their career is booming with things. What it forces them to do is go to mental health, go to mental strength, and actually become contented where they're at, even though they're discontented on the 
on the emotional or the outside of their life, they're contented internally. So I, it's a very daily discipline that I, I get most of my clients, there's about 70 of them right now, I get most of my clients to ping me a, a text every morning with a picture of a circle, 10 things they're going to be thankful for today, in other words, plan their day ahead and be enthusiastic about it, and cross the cross, put the cross around all the areas of life on the outside of the circle and say, I'm 10 out of 10. It's a habit. And it's a habit of contentment, it's a habit of satisfaction, it's the inner wealth, it's the internal, it's where we separate the inner self from the outer. And goals, well, they're the outer, but we attach to them. So if you're not attached to your goals, do whatever you want. But if you're very attached to them, say it's going to make me a better me, it's going to make me a better life, that's very attached. And so that means the inner and the outer are... are uh, glued together in a very one primary one purpose one mission one goal um, then daily habits the daily habits which I call process the daily habits are contentment and making sure you stay balanced in these seven areas of life so in other words uh, seek Seek whatever you want, but seek it from a place of satisfaction or contentment or gratitude if you want to give it a bit of a loose term, but I, I'm not sure that means the same to all of us. So I'd rather say contentment or dis disconnection. So in other words, my relationship is perfect, even though it isn't. Yeah, yeah. If you're not thankful for what you've got, you lose it. So if you're always setting goals for a relationship, which means make it better, you lose your relationship because goals are set on dissatisfaction. You remember that. Goals are, most goals, people write down a goal and say, I haven't got enough money. My goal is to get more. I haven't got enough love in my life. My goal is to get more. So goals are built on dissatisfaction. But dissatisfaction is another word for ingratitude. So if you appreciate what you've got, it grows. If you don't appreciate what you've got, you lose it. So goal setting is stamped, it stamps a mark and says, I'm not happy with what I've got. I'm not happy with what I've got. Here's my goal to get more of it. I change that. Well, it, look, I, I understand how, how uncomfortable it is because we're all talking intellectually and it's conceptually. But let's just hypothetically say... Um, we all lived on a desert island. Let's say we all, all of us. We went to a desert island and we got marooned. Um, you needed to, we need to be fed. So every day you have to wake up and go and get food. Is that a goal? Or is it a routine that you commit to every single day to stay alive? In, in the language of... Uh, in all this complicated language we're using, you say, oh, let's set a goal that every single day we'll get food. And I say, no, let's flip that and say every single day let's have a routine, a schedule, a process that we stick to come hell or high water. Doesn't matter how you feel. Doesn't matter if it's raining. Doesn't matter if it's snowing. Doesn't matter if it's blowing a gale or there's a rescue ship at sea. Every single day we wake up, we go and get food. Oh, 
so there's a, a daily routine uh, that goes in place to fulfill the fundamentals of being satisfied in one of the areas of life. Now, I haven't talked about goals yet because it's not a goal. It's a routine. And then I go, well, what are we going to do spiritually on the island? We can fight all of us, this group, where we are a collaborative group right now. But if you put us all on an island, our thinking place, uh, I would no longer have authority because I'm not the guru of islands. We would all start to bark and bite each other to find out who is the boss and who should we follow and who should be subordinate to that and who should give instructions and who shouldn't. And we'd be starting to think. So there's got to be some spiritual alignment with us all, in other, or, or we're going to eat each other. So you would have to have some daily ritual where we collaborated to agree on a hierarchy. Otherwise, it's going to be a bun fight. So that's routine. It's not a goal. To be spiritual is a ridiculous notion. <laughs> we're born spiritual. So we need to have a routine to remind us of our luck. Let's say uh, another area of life, mental. We're going to go nuts on this island if we all hang out together and talk about how bad it is that we're stuck on a bloody island all together and we lost the boat. So we may have a ritual every day which forces us to think of what are we, why are we lucky to be here. So the mental, the mental goal doesn't become a goal anymore. What it becomes is a, a, a mechanism of making sure we stay balanced, stable. And we go around each area of life and then we get it all done. And this is the part that's coming. We get it all done and you say, wow, we're going to survive, we're going to have headspace, we've got a leadership hierarchy built out of our spiritual process, we've, got, we've agreed to th think positive or think about the affirmative on this island, we're not going to drive, out, drive ourselves into depression. We've got some uh, health regime because we walk to and from the food we go and get. So there's a health regime and we probably do a, a few sit-ups to, I don't know, whatever. And then suddenly it's all, it's all there. And we, 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 we've got a routine that keeps us in order. And then you go, okay, guys, now what? Because once you've bored yourself to death, once you've got it all in order there's kind of like nothing to look forward to. And so you create something to look forward to, which is a goal. Our goal is to leave this island. Now, everybody knows that. But, but if that becomes the primary driving force of everyone's behaviour, they'll starve to death, they'll eat each other, they'll uh, become uh, dis discordant with who's the boss and who's not. They'll uh, get, uh, get all clumsy with their bodies because they'll forget to exercise. And so all the foundation, which will help them get off the island, will be uh, destroyed. And so they sit there with this big fantasy goal. I'm going to get off the island. I'm going to be, I'm going to get off the island. And then they get too sick and too tired and too angry and too eaten up to do it. So... It's kind of like make your bed every morning. It's kind of like lay the foundations of your life and then come up with a big goal. Now, I know the big goal thing is, is difficult, but uh, let, let, let me say it like this, and, and uh, 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 please forgive me because I, I'm going very fast through what takes my clients six months to learn. Can you forgive me for that, guys? 
I'm not, I'm, doing, I'm not joking. This is, this is serious. One-on-one, I'm doing one-on-one coaching that takes me six months to give to a client in coaching and it's been 30 minutes. <laughs> so I am going at 100 miles an hour. So I know, I know. So look, I apologise in a in a in a way I don't apologise, but I apologise if it's hitting nerves and and confusions. I respect that to the ground. I respect it, and it's taken me forty years to talk about it. And I promise you, those forty years haven't been doing it. <laughs> They've been screwing up over and over and over and over again to learn how to talk about it. <laughs> And I was born on the bad side of the railway tracks, I can promise you. And I, re- I relate, because I relate to third world countries. I go and work there to help people uh, with distress. But I think the, 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 the hard thing is, uh, the, the hard thing is, is more like this. Uh, if you're born, um, if you're born without a hardship, your expectations of what you're going to get, get extremely high. So, so I, I think uh, either whether you're born off the railway tracks or born on the other side of the railway tracks, the ability to not be content with what we've got, not be grateful for what is equally, uh, equally present because I work with kids who suicide in indigenous communities, which are born on way over the other side of the track, up in Canada, I promise you. And, uh, you, you know, I don't know your background, but these kids really get raped and bashed and drunk on and dragged and goodness knows what, and they're 10. And uh, they get born, and they're so ungrateful for what they've got. They're miserable. And it's a habit. It's nothing to do with what they've got or where they were born or who they are. They just develop a habit of failure because they get addicted to instantaneous gratification. One of the solutions to being born in a tough place is to instantaneously gratify, be be thankful for everything in the moment. I'm thankful, I'm thankful. And if there's nothing there, they'll pop a sugar because it makes them thankful in the moment. It's survival. And next thing you know, the sugar turns to Coke and then it becomes alcohol and then becomes fights and then it becomes whatever, because life's so tough, they learn, they cope by, uh, by instantaneous gratification, which we often call gratitude. It's not. It's a coping mechanism for distress. And, and you, so it's not so easy as we, as to, uh, I respect your question, but it's not so easy to dis- distinguish the, which side of the line people get born on. Uh, one gets too high expectation, they get ungratitude, one gets too low expectation and they get what they call gratitude, but it's just gratification. This is what I was going to say, just to finish off the topic, if I may, on this chart. When, uh, when I take people in Nepal, it goes like this. It's really interesting to watch, and, and I've done it so many times. In Kathmandu, everybody comes with their seven areas of life and all their problems in their pocket. You go, how you going? And they go, oh, my relationship's in the shit and, you know, I've got to fix it up. Or, or they go, oh, I'm running out of money. My work's just boring me to batless. I'm just over it. And I go, okay, yeah. and, and next person. I, and so we go around the seven areas of life and I say to everyone, oh, how, 
how are you in that area? Oh, I'm two or I'm one or I hate, I've got a depression, I'm on antidepressant pills. And we leave Kathmandu, we start walking up the mountains. And on day three, up the mountains, I say, how are you going? Give me a circle, how are you going? And they go, well, I don't really know. <laughs> and I go, what do you mean you don't really know? And I said, well, from up here, my relationship is not as bad as I thought. And I do have some money in the bank. And um, I'm not feeling quite so depressed anymore. And they would go another two days up in the mountains and they get higher and higher where the things that they're worried about don't matter as much. They get higher and higher. In other words, the further you get away from the imbalances or the problems we define in relationship spiritual as things we need to have goals to fix, the further you get away from them physically up the mountain, the higher they go, the less they see them as bad. They, rec they see them, but they start being, I don't think the word is thankful, but they start being respectful or, or something of what they've got. And then I, when we get higher and higher up into the mountains of the Himalayas, and I say, so what's your primary goal? Which they would have said down in Kathmandu is to fix my relationship, sort my spiritual self out, get a different job, earn more money, blah, blah, blah. By the time... Um, echoings. I'm getting feedback. By the time they get up into the, the higher up in the mountains and they get further away from their relationship, the more beautiful it becomes and the less they worry about it. And then if, I'd, if I had asked them at the bottom, what's your primary goal? They would have gone, I've got no idea. I'm so out of balance with all this shit going on around my life. My goals are just to get my shit together in my life. But as they go up the mountain, that distance away from something starts to give them a viewpoint, a perspective. And as they get higher, they start to dream a little bit. And what returns to a person who doesn't have the stress of trying to fix their career, relationship, mental, physical, they're not bouncing around with conflicting goals, what returns to a person is their imagination. And as they get higher and higher up in the mountain, they start to, uh, well, Australians call it dreaming, but the Himalayas, they just call it uh, God because the Mount Everest is God and uh, they just say when you're in the sight of God you dream and so people start having vivid night dreams and so we get higher and higher and then I give them a piece of paper and a clipboard and a pencil and I take them up on at about 5,000 meters high and I sit them behind a warm a rock where there's warmth with their gloves on and their beanies and all their, everything beautiful at 5,000 metres. And just down the way there is a lovely coffee shop where we're all going to come and meet. Put people behind a rock with a notepad and pencil and say, write your goal. And there's not been one person out of 2,000 that has come down with that one. <laughs> and I can talk to them 20 years later and say, how's your goal? And they go, still going. It's great. It's beautiful. I still know what I want to do with my life. But it doesn't. It's not so easy when you're in the when you're in the swamp, and the, or in the rip out of Bondi here. You're in a rip, and you're being drawn out to sea. And someone says, "What's your What's your big purpose? What's your big goal? What's your vision?" And you go, "Survival," which is get those seven areas of life in balance. Coaching is about self belief and fun. And if you if if you if you can if you can engage your imagination. 
uh, if you can engage your imagination, you'll get self-belief. They are interconnected. They are one topic. Self-belief equals imagination. If you can imagine the possibility of a future, you will believe in yourself. If you can't imagine the possibility of the future, you will lose self-belief. And I honestly think imagination and fun is one topic. So I kind of like when I start to see people frowning over coaching or frowning over their work or frowning over stress or frowning over self-development, I go, you've got it wrong. Self-development or self-leadership or business or going to work, it needs to be fun. Otherwise, the imagination goes down the shitter. If the imagination goes down the shitter, self-belief goes with it. And if self-belief goes, now we're talking just uh, hammering concrete seven days a week and that's, that, that is going to drain the heart and soul out of a human being. Uh, so I think ultimately the purpose of all coaching is self-belief, which equals imagination, which makes life fun. And if it's not fun saving money, and if it's not fun cooking dinner, and if it's not fun going to work, and if it's not fun having an uh, argument with your partner, and if it's not fun doing some exercise, you won't do it for long. We'll sabotage anything that we don't call fun. Uh, fun's a bit loose word, but it's, it's you know what I mean by fun. Uh, uh, enjoyable, whatever the word. I'd like to just now quickly go on and uh, say that... Uh, on the way up, you need to be... I think any person who's aiming for something needs a coach, a mentor. And it doesn't have to be, obviously, me. I only can only coach a handful of people. But choose your coach carefully. You've got the negatives up there. And choose who you, who you listen to. I say, my favourite quote is... Uh, two quotes. I say, your stress is not my stress. I say that over and over and over again to myself. Because... When somebody gets stressed, they want to tell you they're stressed so that you become stressed, so there's now two people stressed. But when two people are stressed, one of them, uh, 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 two people being stressed doesn't make one of them better. So I say over and over again, someone's crying because there's a death or someone's crying because they didn't get a job or they didn't win the game or didn't... I, I go, hmm, you're crying because you didn't win the game. That's your choice. I respect that. But I'm not going to cry too. Two people crying doesn't make one person happy. So the first thing I say on the way up coaching, know your Mount Everest, know what it is. You, you, you somehow pulled yourself away from the, from the seven areas of life and just go up a mountain in a virtual sense and try and, try and think about what would be my, uh, what would be written on my tombstone when I pass. I ask the question of many people, um, do I have it written down here? I ask the question of many, many people, I say in a conference, I say, if there's one thing you could change on this planet before you leave it, what would it be? And the answer to that question is pretty much your life purpose. It's kind of like the biggest goal you'll ever have. And I kind of like think it's really cool to have a goal that is, lasts more than the next 10 minutes or the next 10 weeks or the next 10 years. It's kind of like cool to answer that question and have that in your back of your mind no matter what happens. Predict and prepare, manage change, mental toughness, recover and rebound. That's coaching. So what I'd like to talk to a day, today about is the topic of um, mental rebound. So, uh, so just so we're all on the same page, when I say consciousness, I mean lack, lack of emotion. So uh, one of the things that happens, I coach some people for 10 years and we end up coaching for 10 minutes every two weeks. 
And the reason we can coach for 10 minutes every two weeks, we, we understand a language and it's taken, it takes usually a year to get used to the fact that when I say uh, incompetence, I say you're incompetent, I don't mean you're stupid. What I mean is you've grown out of your comfort zone and we grow into, always we grow into incompetence. It's a part of ourselves we have to learn to love. When I say love, I mean that life will go, there'll be good news and bad news for the entirety of your life. And what I mean by love is support and challenge. So this is my life. I had kids, I went to school, I got married, there was all good news, I got dumped, mum got killed, uh, I got a divorce, uh, WTC, oh, World Trade Center in New York, I lost $53 million when the, or $58 million when the plane hit the building. Um, and my, I broke my back and I've had back surgery, three back surgeries to be able to walk again. So your life ends up being a balance of support and challenge. And I call that love. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably, and so that's a language, a language thing. It's like someone talking Spanish and I'm talking French and we think we're talking the same topic. So it takes a while to get used to language. We grow into incompetence just like a tree does. Uh, through the through the circles of a tree, we grow at the border of support and challenge, and that's the reality of it. Um, so, at work, when you're feeling stressed, it's a sign that you need to evolve. That's all it is. It's nothing more than that. Okay. So, what I want you to do, I'm going to teach you Chris Walker's version of meditation. You ready for this? So what I need you to do is make sure that you, the earphones on your, uh, that you're listening with um, can be turned down if you need to do it. So in other words, just be prepared to pull your earplug out because I'm going to give you some meditation music and I'm going to teach you Walker's version of meditation that I've learnt from being in the Himalayas with the monks for all this time. And I'm going to teach you the most profound mechanism of learning how to meditate right now. And I'm going to start off just for a couple of minutes with some music and I'm going to wind up the dial on the music and it's going to get a little bit louder. This is my meditation music. Are you at peace? Why is that my meditation music? Why? So, that's the first thing. Second thing, when they put quiet music on to teach you meditation, where can you hold the space that you learn in meditation? The only place you can hold it is in a quiet place. 
But what you need to learn is how to be in a quiet place with that music playing and be at peace and be in love and be in harmony inside yourself with the most rowdiest music in the world playing with rock banging against your nerves. And you sit there calm as a cucumber going, I can write a poem here about love and intimacy and friendship instead of putting on, oh, you're really beautiful person. You're a really beautiful person, I really like you a lot. And you are at peace, and you go, oh, I feel so peaceful. And you walk out the front door and a car toots its horn, toots its horn and you, you, you lose the plot. That's not meditation. Meditation in the Himalayas, they make the monks work hard. And if they start to bliss out, they send them out to beg. They send them out to chop wood. They send them out to go and get the, or push goats off the hill so they can be vegetarian with goat food. So it, 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 this conversation is about disrupting what the people have imported the East into the West and said, oh, by the way, you need to meditate. And you go, well, are you saying calm down my nerves at the end of the day? And if you go, yes, well, that's one topic, which is lying down on the floor listening to some peaceful music to calm your nerves at the end of the day. But what would I say to that? I would say don't get your nerves rattled during the day. I'm not interested in band-aids over the end of the day. I'm interested in making sure you don't get rattled during the day, which means seven areas of life, keep the circle round. Yeah, only that only breaks people who set goals on the outside. <laughs> if you take a monk who's been meditating and put the music on, they'll sit there smiling at you. What's the problem? And they'll enjoy the music. They'll say, how can I compartmentalise this music and enjoy it and therefore make it part of my meditation? They won't say, uh, instead of saying, oh, COVID's come along. Oh, poor me. Oh, ooh, it's, I'm locked down. I've got the kids. They say, how do I make COVID part of my life? How do I make this a good thing? How do I make the music, this rock, how do I make this hard the spicy environment with COVID and arguments and lockdown and things, how do I actually make that my meditation instead of saying, how do I get rid of COVID so I can get back to what I was doing before? Poor me. This is, this is where meditation and all this Eastern yogi thing has gone off the rails. Because if you go and live there, none of the teachers taught what's being taught. They'd come in, they'd confront and shake the shit out of you. If you went and did yoga in India, I did it for three trips for six months. The yoga teacher punished me really hard and made me stay shaking in a yoga pose and just trembling and there's no music. And then they say, now piss off and come back tomorrow. And you get a day to recover. After six months, you're actually looking forward to being punished, like going into an environment where it's intense. It's not cruel. But boy, oh boy, it's not like any uh, sweet music, hum, hum, howdy-do. And what they're teaching you is to how to roll things into your life instead of push them away in order to be peaceful. It's how, how do you take a bad boss at work and roll the boss into the, 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 the day and keep your circle round, right? How do you keep your circle completely 10 out of 10 with a tough colleague or a bad project or a difficult thing at home or COVID. You roll them in. You take the music like we just did 
and you say, I'm going to meditate to this and learn how to sit still inside myself. I know on the outside it rattles our cage. But sit still inside myself listening to this music. If you watch the Tour de France, uh, just finished, uh, Pogacar won the thing. And the, the, the one thing the commentator said to him at the end, he says, you look like you're always playing. Everyone looks serious. And Pogacar says, yeah, it started off as a game as a kid. It's still a game. And it's a, it, he, the look on his and I can only tell how he's experiencing the Tour de France by the look on his face. And it was always, this is fun, even when he was working his butt off. So he took the rain and the storms and the mountains and the competition and he just rolled it in to what he called play and won the Tour de France. And, and that's, he's, he's no better than anybody else. He had just a better headspace to deal with the complexity of that environment, tiredness. And um, when, when you work in uh, uh, North America in the, with Can Canadian indigenous people, they have a thing called the sweat lodge. And uh, Jesus, crikey, Bill, that's the spookiest place in earth. And you go into this little tenty thing covered in uh, pelts and they put a, a circle of rocks in the middle and you sit around the outside, it's pitch black. And then they pour water on, the, on these hot, red hot rocks and the water's got a sage in it and, it's just and it burns, burns your skin. And if you move one millimetre, you put your skin against new steam. So it burns, you get blisters. So you've got to sit frozen still for as long as they decide, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. The intensity of that environment is, is mirrored by the intensity of a meditation environment in, uh, in Nepal. You go up the Himalayas and you say, I'd like to sit with you guys in meditation. You've got kids running around with uh, biros with rice in them, spitting rice at you <laughs> from across the room. And you've got monks stealing your lunch and your, your tea. From, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's, not, it's not fun, it's jovial. I don't know what the word is. It's not, oh, gee, it's really quiet. Don't make any noise, please, because I'm meditating. It's nowhere near any of the, the point at which mental toughness comes together. All the three, the enthusiasm for the future, the strong will because you know what you want, and the positive in staying, taking every failure as a success and saying that failure is getting me closer to my goal turns it all into fun. There's only two aspects of your mind. Remember, this is space, distance away from something, and time. So those are the two parameters of all thought. So when you have an argument, let's say if, if I have a disagreement with Lotte and she's here, uh, and I walk out the front door and walk down the beach, which is just 50 metres down the road on Bondo Beach, by the time I get to the beach, I can't work out for the life of me what we were arguing about. And I feel stupid. I go... Oh, man, I was so pissed off. And now I'm, oh. And I start walking back towards the house. And the closer I get to the house, the more the stuff that we were disagreeing on comes back in my mind. It's, it's really interesting to see how space and time can play with our head. Play with our head. And I just think physical things like Tour de France and climbing up a mountain are just another way of explaining space and time. So, um, you know, I've worked with people who have um, Parkinson's who have no ability to play sport um, uh, left in their life, but they are facing all of the same ingredients that Pogacar would face 
as they sit in their wheelchair dealing with their own uh, mortality. So yeah, good question. Thank you for that. And um, and uh, uh, because I'm a sporty person, I, I use sporting metaphors. But the, it's not meant to be. It's all mental, hundred percent mental. Yeah. And that's the people walking up the mountains in the Himalayas who get a clear sense of their own purpose and goals are physically getting further and further away from the thing that they're that is that circle that's traumatizing them to goal set and everything. The further they get away from it, the more pretty it looks. And they suddenly, you know, so it's not a physical space. I think a lot of it is about having perspective, absolutely, if we're in stress. But, but I think perspective is not the, the silver bullet. Uh, I think it's to set a, if to know your to stay balanced in all seven areas of life, you do need every day to do what I call helicopter, a helicopter mindset, which is go up above your life and look back on it and go, man, I'm really lucky. You need to be able to do that and then go back into it and walk around with that uh, headspace. I have my client. I had a client in Melbourne who this is a very senior woman in an in executive firm, but she just was. She came to me with a, she, a lot of body weight, and she was feeling very oppressed, and she'd held on to that for for eighteen years. And I said, in the first week, what I want you to do is a good example of what we're talking about. And uh, Louise, it's a good example of um, perspective. I said, what I want you to do is for a week. Just one week of your life, I want, there's a word, F-K-R, right? F-K-R. And if you say it, it says a word, a swear word. But if you just read it, it's F-K-R. And I want you to walk around every day for one week. And I want you to do 1,000, I'm a lucky F-K-R. I'm a lucky fucker. One week. And I swear to God, if you call her today, it's a year and a half later, she said, that week changed my life. And all she did every day, 1,000, and, and I bring her each day because it was, you know, it's early stages of coaching. I do a weekly thing for a month. And I said, uh, so? And she goes, I got on the tram, I dropped my umbrella. And I went, oh. and she goes, no, wait, I'm a lucky fucker. Uh, I dropped my umbrella, I need a new one anyway. And she just went on and, and she, she, it was humorous beyond belief. We laughed until we cried. And she took a day which she would normally interpret with perspective, uh, Louise. She took a day that she'd normally have a perspective on where she had bad luck getting on the tram, she had bad luck getting off the tram, she had bad luck getting to work, she had a bad luck doing this and bad luck back. She flipped it and just said, I'm a lucky fucker. All day. And to this day, this is a year and a half later, she'll, she'll, if I say something and inadvertently don't see it as being lucky, she'll say, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> you're a lucky fucker. <laughs> it's anchored in her brain. It's neuro-linguistic reprogramming of her brain with just three little words, FKR. And it's so cool because it's kind of like guttural language for a very spiritual outcome or a very so guys, what would you like to talk about? Someone said about managing upwards. And uh, I, I think that's a great topic because every time you want something from somebody, you've put them up. 
So if you want something from a kid, they're up. If you want something from a partner, they're up. Every time you want something from somebody, you put them up. And you turn into a salesperson because what you're trying to do is get what they've got into your hands. So every time you want something, if you want affection, if you want a promotion, if you want uh, approval, if you want uh, pay rise, if you want something, you've put the person with the thing you want above you. And of course, as you will well all know, I, I'm sure you all know it, uh, the greatest Buddhist quote of all time is, I need nothing, I want nothing, and therefore I have everything. So the Buddhists try to not empower others and not disempower self. What they try to say is we're all equal. Of course, they don't work in Optus. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I eventually got everyone to smile. That's all right. But when you want something from somebody, you, you empower them. And that's just life. And you become a salesperson. So the art of managing upward is the art of sales. I strongly, uh, I know, and every client I coach has to manage upwards because everybody wants something from somebody, somewhere, even if it's God or heaven or whatever, sport coach or whatever. Everybody wants something. And as soon as we want something, we're a salesperson. We're below that person. And we have to be humble to that. And the question we've got is always, what does that person want in return for what I want? What do, what do they value that I could give them in order for them to give me what I want? And that's a relationship, by the way. So one of the exercises we do, which I could get you to do, do you feel like doing something? Oh, we've only got 20 minutes. I could run you through a values. To, if, you, if you know what you want, that's your values hierarchy. What's most important? When we manage up, we're asking the person to give us something that we want in return for something they want. It's called the art of sales. If, um, and when I coach somebody, the first thing is, uh, the first rule is know yourself. The first rule is know yourself. And what is yourself? Well, it's got nothing to do with what you say because you can change that. It's got nothing to do with your body because you can change that. It's got nothing to do with your family because you can change that. It's got nothing to do with what you think and feel because you can change that. So when we say, who are you and what's the self, we've got to, we're looking for something that can't be changed. And people go, oh, I'm a soul. And I go, oh, bullshit. Come on, that's a skate route. What are you? You are your values. Because every choice you make for the entirety of your life, whether you know it or not, is based on you getting what you want, which is your values. So every choice, every decision, everything that, and we sabotage, and this is a really cool thing as a coach, you've got to know this, you sabotage anything you can't link to your highest value. So if you're talking about, if I'm coaching someone going through a divorce, suddenly they've said to themselves, my highest value is blah, blah, and this person I'm living with doesn't get me there 
therefore I'm going to sabotage this relationship. If you're in a job and you suddenly go, you know, I really wanted to work in a place that gave the world, that gave me a lot of money, made me feel good and does something important. And you wake up one day and say, this job doesn't give me what I want, which is my highest value. You'll suddenly start behaving at work a little bit, uh, which it probably wouldn't be seen as self-sabotage, but it is not, but it is. So we sabotage anything that doesn't link to our top values. So really when someone says, who are you? Do you know yourself? They're asking you to write down on a piece of paper, what are your values? Now your values are fingerprint specific. There's no two people on earth with the same set of values. If you're drilling down and asking the question over and over again, what are your values and why do you want that? And why do you want that? You, you will find fingerprints. And when two people are in a relationship, it's very easy to say, I want this and therefore my partner wants the same things. But they've got fingerprint specific values too. So in a relationship, what it's about is satisfying someone else's values to satisfy your own. It's called sales. At work, manage up. Satisfy your boss's values whatever they are, and you have to think, how do I know their values? You can work it out, because I'll give you the form. And then you go, what are my values? What do I want? What do they want? You give them what they want to get what you want. It's called sales. It's really important to drill it down and say, even romance is the art of sales. Even work is the art of sales. The one thing that I would say, though, when it comes to managing upwards, which is a little key to success here is look not at the boss that you've got when you manage upwards, look at their boss. Satisfy the boss's boss. I don't know what you call it in your, your company, what, what you call your person above you, but I still call it a boss. But satisfy your boss's boss is values and you will go really fast to the top. If you satisfy your boss's values, you will not go anywhere. You'll get hunted. Everybody's fighting to get the attention of their boss, but it's their boss's boss that actually is handing out the gold medals. It's handing out the uh, pay rise to your boss. So your boss is trying to please their boss. So if you know what their boss wants and you work towards that, you're on the same page as your boss. Does that make sense, guys? So look for your boss's boss and try to, f try to Google them and... Uh, link, find out what their values are and I'll give you a form to do it at the end of this because Simon's going to remind me. And, uh, and with that reminder, you'll have a form. Now, when you fill it out, fill it out the first time, exactly answer the questions all the way through it. Fill out a second time and say, what does that mean to me? In other words, if you're looking for the deeper intrinsic nature of a value, the first time you go through the form, it'll say, you know, uh, what, surround, what do you have a lot of in your house? And you go, plants. And then you go, what do you have on the walls of your house? You'll go, oh, paintings of the kids, pictures of the kids. Uh, what else? Oh, bikes. And you go, okay. So there's three things. What, and the second time you go through the process, you say, well, what does the bike mean to me? 
What does the pictures of the kids mean to me? What do these game machines mean to me? So you're looking for the intrinsic nature of the external. So you've got external values and internal values. It's really fun. And, and this is for me a joyful part of life because people think they change their values, but I've only seen one or two people in the entirety of my life change their values in the entirety of their life. So as a coach, it, it's, it's quite often people come at you and you're being coached or educated by the company. You have to be aware of your values because you need to resist the, the, the uh, temptation to buy into the company's values or buy into somebody else's values and make them your own. Because that is catastrophe. Expectations of others, when those expectations of others become your expectations of yourself, you've borrowed values from another human being. And there is nothing sure that that will take you to a really, really dark place in life. At work, at home, health, everything. If I sourced all the trauma of all the people I've worked with, and you guys aren't in trauma, I can see it, but I've, if I've worked with someone, someone comes to me in serious trauma, it's always values conflict. Trying to live somebody else's values and make them their own. They're trying to emulate somebody else. Well, you give them what they want. This is the... This is one of the things that the millennials are having so much trouble with in life is they haven't been taught the art of sales. In other words, you don't go up a ladder unless you give the person above you what they want. So the art of selling or the art of romance or the art of leadership in business is to give people what they want to get what you want. You have to start with them. So if you find out what your boss's boss wants and what their values are and you know yours, you give them their values to get yours. That's the math. So every single person you ever meet will have a different value set to you. And if you want something from them, which means you put them up on a, on a thing because they've got something you want, you have to look up and you go, I want what you've got. So I'm going to give you this to get that. You know, in, simply in a, in a shop that's buying milk. I'll give you a dollar because you want what I've got, money. And you've got what I want, milk. <laughs> so in a, it's very simplistic. Uh, in, in that way. Uh, I, I, my, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good question. Yeah, good question. Um, f f f the first thing I do would give yourself 24 hours where you don't do anything with it. And, and uh, there's a, a metaphor of this, and that is you come to the river, which is this conversation, it's a river, you dip your cup in and it gets full up with water, like you're full up right now, right? And I respect the fact you all came with empty cups. So I didn't have anybody coming in going, I know everything and Chris, I'm going to give you, you came with an empty cup, an open mind. And I respect everybody here on this screen for, for that. And I could see it, you've got open minds. When I turn the computer off, tip the cup upside down, pour it all out and then turn it up and what's left in that cup is yours. So try to forget what we've talked about, not look at your notes, not read anything more about it for 24 hours. Walk away from it. And if someone says, what did you learn? You go, I'll tell you in 24 hours. Don't take what you've learned and, and regurgitate it as if you own it. Wait for 24 hours. And in 24 hours, sit down with a notepad and pencil and make some notes. What do you think you heard? 
What do you, would you like to do with it? And then go from there because that's tipping the cup out. What's not yours is fine and what's still in there is yours. And I strongly recommend that. I strongly recommend not to think. But in 24 hours, you make some notes and I would go find someone to tell them what you think you learned. I would definitely, to add to, to give yourself valuation of the time you've just spent, the two hours, I would go find somebody online or with a cup of coffee or in your house and say, I've made some notes. This is what I think I heard. This is what I think I've learned. And you have to say, I think, because goodness knows. <laughs> Until you apply it, you don't know if you've learned it. But it's better to anchor what's left in the cup by sharing it with a willing ear and you, you say to that person would you like to hear what I heard from this uh, Chris Walker the talker on uh, on the uh, uh, on the phone the other day and you go yeah okay I'll listen and you go 15 minutes pow and dump it I think the answers will flow from that point because if you find yourself being excited by what you've shared with another person it's exciting enough to do if you find yourself being bored shitless, sharing it with another person, you go right at that, screw, screw it up, put it in the rubbish tin and say, well, that was a nice couple of hours on a, on a Friday. <laughs> it's never wasted. Py, Py, Pythagoras had a great thing. I, I, he's one of my heroes. He goes, they, he gave a lecture to 140 people. He gave a big lecture. And uh, at the end of the lecture, there was only one person left in the room and they go, someone came up to him at the end and said, geez, that must be really humiliating. You know, 100 and, uh, 140, 139 people walked out on your talk. And, he, and Pythagoras said, no, there, there was only one person listening the whole time. It just took a long time for the rest to go. <laughs> so I hope in this conversation with you all out there, one of you, at least somebody, or at least a little bit of what I say gets across. And, and that little bit is enough. I promise. A little bit's enough. And when you're ready, if you decide you've got a goal and you want to go for it and you can, and you understand that you're getting the areas balanced and philosophically you line up with what we're talking about here, then uh, maybe ask uh, Patrice or whoever it is to get you some more coaching. But from this point, it's one-on-one. -on -one. I can't coach generically in uh, groups, but I can introduce coaching to a group like I have today and say, well, this is sort of where I would go philosophic. Lots of love, guys, and uh, all the best at uh, Optus, and thank you for giving me your, uh, your time. That's